with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning. Trudy Clausen here, your host for today's um, After 9. I have one hour with uh, John Rustad, the... Nechaco Lakes MLA that was recently booted out of the BC Liberal Party caucus. Good morning, John. Good morning, Trudy. Thanks for having me on. All right. So uh, I'm looking forward to this discussion. It's going to be interesting. I mean, you know, I'm a political beast, so I <laughs> I love all the drama and the intrigue. Uh, <laughs> so, but maybe before we begin that, let's um, let's just introduce yourself, uh, if you could introduce yourself just briefly. Sure. So I, my name's John Rustad. I'm the MLA for Nechaco Lakes and now the independent MLA for Nechaco Lakes. And I was first elected provincially in 2005 to the riding that was known as Prince George Amanika. In 2009, my riding changed to uh, the riding of Nechako Lakes. Uh, I've served as the Minister for Aboriginal Relations and Reconciliation for just over four years, uh, of which during that time I actually signed 435 agreements, which is more than any other uh, person has done in BC's history. Wow, that's remarkable. Um, and then I was also very briefly the Minister of Forest before the switch over to the uh, uh, to the NDP in 2017. Where so I think actually I'm the longest serving. Uh, Aboriginal Relations Minister and probably the shortest serving Minister of Force. <laughs> yeah, how long was that? Was that like a week or? Four weeks. Four weeks, yeah, okay. Yeah, it, it was eventful because that's when the huge wildfire started in 2017, halfway through and it, 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 after two weeks. So. Well, that was the response. <laughs> yep, it was like, okay, yep. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, and uh, so do you live in that area? Like, Yes, yeah, so I live at Clucas Lake. I, okay. I was born and raised in Prince George. You know, I've spent all my life, life in northern BC. And when my riding boundaries changed in 2009, I thought it was appropriate that I live in my riding. So uh, we moved, my wife and I moved out to Clucas Lake and uh, we certainly don't regret it. It's so beautiful and peaceful out there. Okay. Now, this is a, just a personal question that I've always had. Like, are you related to the Rustad mill? Is it the mill that used to be here? Yeah. So, um, the, there is a, I am related, but, uh, it's a bit of a connection. Um, the, uh, the last owner of the mill was, um, was Jim Rustad. Uh, his dad, Carl, was my dad's cousin. Oh, so okay. it's connected, but uh, so not second, directly. Second once removed. I don't know sure what's called. First once removed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, that's interesting. Okay. All right. So okay. So here we are. Um, <laughs> you've been a long time member of the BC Liberals and and served in government as well under the BC Liberals. So so what happened? Well, as you know, I, I mean, I spent uh, almost 18, well, this is my 18th year now in provincial politics, and all of that uh, I've spent with the BC Liberals before now, um, helping to build our team and helping to, to, to do things. Um, so uh, this uh, last spring, um, I had asked uh, our leader to have a conversation around um, climate change and climate policies. And uh, that just kept getting kicked down the road. We never did have a, uh, a conversation around it uh, since he was elected as leader. And so um, I thought, okay, so there's some factual information that came out that uh, uh, Patrick Moore, Dr. Patrick Moore uh, posted, which showed that there hadn't been global warming in Australia over the past 10 years and that the uh, Great Barrier Reef was actually expanding and was actually in a very healthy state, which is the official position now of, of the Australian government. Um, and um, uh, Mr. Falcon demanded that I remove that tweet, uh, that I remove that post I, after uh, the NDP started piling on uh, about two or three days later and attacking me on it. And I said, no, it's factual information. I'm not going to delete something that is factual. 
Um, and so he, he this said... This is about the coral reef. This is about uh, the, the temperatures in Australia over the last decade and the coral reef. Um, and so he... Um, um, uh, at that point, there was uh, uh, some people from uh, from my caucus uh, that were calling me, uh, demanding me to remove this. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to let things kind of settle down, and uh, we'll talk tomorrow. And that was uh, the next day. Of course, was my uh, 59th birthday, <laughs> and so I took a phone call. I, I sent a text to uh, uh, to Mr. Falcon, and I said, "What time would you like to have a call?" And so <clears throat> we had a call at uh, at 12:30, and he said. Uh, uh, it's unacceptable that uh, you're that you uh, would post information like this. Uh, you have to tow the the caucus line, which, quite frankly, we was from previous leaders, not from him, because we hadn't had a conversation. Uh, and I said, you know, this is factual information, and more importantly, there is policies that are coming forward that are intentionally hurting people, including my riding. I think I need to be able to be vocal about this. I need to be able to speak up about this. And he said, you're not allowed to do that. You have to tow the caucus line. If you're not willing to do that, you can't be part of the caucus. And I said, well, I guess we have an irre- irreconcilable difference uh, because I think, you know, I need to be able to represent my riding and, and be able to talk about this. And so he said, fine, and hung up. And a half an hour later, you know, a notice went out that I was kicked out of caucus. So was that a shock to you? Like, did you, had you expected that? Um, I had hoped, like I say, I tried to have this conversation internally within uh, our caucus. Uh, and I'd hoped that we would be able to have this because it's an important issue. I mean, climate change is something that is real, that impacts us all. Um, policies that are being brought forward around this are, are impacting us all. We should have a conversation about where we need to be on this. We should be able to have this open dialogue. Uh, and I felt I, I felt it very uh, strange or unfortunate that we did not have that conversation, given that's you know the the big issue according to Falcon. It's the number one issue that's facing us today, even though he doesn't talk about it. Um, so I was a little surprised when I posted factual information that that became kind of the wedge. Uh, so, uh, but having said that, uh, I have no problem, and you know I have no ill feelings towards him or my caucus colleagues or the BC Liberals. You know, I spent a lot of time with them. But I feel that it is important we have this this conversation. It is, whether it is uh, fossil fuel policy or whether it's policy around fertilizer uh, and uh, and cattle herds and the reductions uh, that are being proposed in, in that, you know, I think it's important we have this kind of a conversation that people so people can understand what the impact of these policies are uh, versus what the benefits are of these policies. Are they making a difference in terms of climate change? Are they making a difference in terms of, you know, the, the theory of CO2? Um, or is this something else that's going on? Uh, and how do you weigh those impacts on people and everyday lives versus uh, what the stated goals are? So I think it's just important that we be able to have this conversation. And now I feel actually I'm happy that I'm able to actually voice this start having this conversation and hopefully this will create a dialogue. Hmm. <clears throat> it it seems that in in the world of of discussing especially climate change it just seems that you're either on one side or the other and that there's no in between allowed. Is that do you think that is part of the issue here? Well, we have this cancel culture that's going on um, and in particular it, it is absolutely brutal this sort of woke culture in our post-education system that is really hamstringing um, uh, education professionals from being able to even do research and post and, and um, 
have anything that might be going contrary. You know, for example, um, a lady who had studied uh, polar bears for most of her professional career, who was a um, you know speaking in a lecture at uh, at University of Victoria, uh, she posted an article that said you know the polar bears are doing just fine, and with all the the data, uh, all the information stuff behind it, well, she she lost her job because she dared to go against the narrative. Uh, the person who looked after the coral reefs uh, at the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, who had been there for 36 years, I think it was, and who had done this study and showed that the coral reef is doing just fine. He lost his job. And there's plenty of examples out there like this because there's this hardcore narrative that has locked into our society and you're not even allowed to even question it without there being consequences. And, you know, me being fired out of the BC Liberal Caucus is a prime example of that. And it's too bad. I mean, BC Liberals used to be a party that was um, that was proud of being, um, you know, a big tent, having varying opinions and perspectives out there. You know, we used to be able to have free votes. We don't have that anymore. It's become a very um, uh, exclusive type of uh, party that is, uh, you know, focused on really what <laughs> these... Uh, this woke culture and this environmental elitist uh, narrative is and okay that's good that's where they want to go but that's certainly not where i am so what's the danger of that kind of um like what do you see the danger of that one that that kind of uh political world where where you're not allowed to advocate for your uh for your writings views for your um and where you have to where every vote is a forced vote well, it's it's uh, it's a mark against democracy, and and really in society today, when you look at uh, all of the issues that are going on, and I'm not, you know, going to take a position one way or the other on sort of some of the issues that we're facing, but all of it is leading to a growing lack of confidence in government and in government institutions, and so when you see this happening within a political party, um, and even within a, within a legislature, um, it, what it's saying is that the it, I guess you could say it's it's a rot that has creep, crept in, and it's not healthy. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that the average, I mean, people who run for office are usually not timid people. Um, so why do you think, like, and, and just talking, like, we'll, we'll uh, finish off this segment just talking about that, that political atmosphere. Um, why have these strong individuals who have won their uh, their electorate and, and, and won a position in government, why have they allowed themselves to be to be cowed like this? Well, there's a, a couple of things, um, you know, and, and I think it's, it was Thomas Sowell that said uh, the number one goal of a politician is to get elected. The number two goal is to get reelected. The number three goal is somewhere way down the priority list. Uh, and so when you look at politicians, uh, when you look at political structure, because it's a party structure and there's a leader in place, there is fear and intimidation that become part of that. Um, you want to maybe have a shot at being in cabinet. Maybe you want a certain critic position. Maybe there's other sort of components. And so, you know, if you speak out against um, positions, yeah. your odds and your chances of actually being successful in, in that kind of stuff can be difficult. And I, I knew that. I spoke out about a number of things um, back in my first two terms. And uh, so, you know, that uh, probably stopped me from being in cabinet. Now, once you're in cabinet, it's different because when you're in cabinet, uh, it really is about the government agenda that's moving forward and you have to be uh, loyal to that. But 
But in when you're a caucus member, you know, I truly do believe you need to be able to voice your perspective, particularly to be able to voice what your people have elected you to do. Well, the one term, and I'm not quite sure how to say it, um, uh, the idea of being ruled by elites, like this is some, like, or by professionals, like, and so, like, the more and more that that representatives, local representatives, are forced to just toe the party line, you 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 begin to make the case for well then we can just put a, do away with the local representative and just have be ruled by people who are professionals um who can sit around and like because if you're not listening to your electorate that's what would eventually happen right yes and and it is you know that's the challenge in in democracy in representative democracy and it, <clears throat> Uh, I think it was uh, Winston Churchill that said, you know, democracy is the worst of all forms of government, uh, except that, uh, you know, it's For better than other- anything else that's been tried to date. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as messy and difficult and, and sometimes exactly. badly functioning. It and, is. and so it, there's this trade off, you know, because at the end of the day, you can't have everybody running off in all directions. Um Right. You know, and, and everybody has, you know, varying opinions and it's, so it becomes then unmanageable or ungovernable. So okay. you have to be able to have some structure, but at the same time, you have to have the ability for people to be able to express, um, you know, their views and opinions, particularly when it comes to, to representing your riding. Well, one of the political panelists here on After Nine, uh, Peter Ewart, I, I don't think I'm misquoting him because he would be fond. He's he's always arguing against the party structure, so <laughs> he'd be glad to hear you say that. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, if you think about how democracy has developed in British Columbia. <clears throat> um, I think it was back uh, before, around 1906. Um, before that time, there was no parties. Mm-hmm. People were just elected to represent, and then you made a declaration as to whether you were in in government or whether you're in opposition to government after you were elected after you were elected oh so let's, and well i mean people but i mean how did the, how did they decide who was the premier then well it's i'm i'm quite frankly i don't know i oh. haven't really looked at that but oh. it was after i think it was around 1906 that the party structures came in because what ended up happening is governments were kept collapsing and they had elections like every two years and so they couldn't get anything done so they brought a party structure in to try to uh, actually be able to a get things done, a little bit more stability in the in the system. Well, this goes back to what you were saying that like <clears throat> that you do have to have some structure and some party loyalty in a sense, so that you, um, so that you can get things done. But I mean, so isn't this a fault more? Like, if you want to try to fix that so that people don't just toe the party line, like in the sense of just, oh, no, I'm not even going to think about it. I'm just there to get elected and be reelected and make sure that I get a cabinet seat, etc. Doesn't the fault lie, like, I mean, I know that it's systematic, but I mean, how do you begin to change that? Is that by individuals taking stands like you have? Well, you know, and I, I actually don't think the political system is really that bad. Uh, but I think there does need to be that flexibility. And historically, there has been some. Um, but, uh, you know, currently, uh, because of this cancel culture and this, uh, t- this type of approach that's being taken, it is very much discouraged. Uh, you need to follow this because as soon as you don't, you immediately get all these people piling on because, uh, God forbid, you might actually challenge the narrative of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think... If we have to, if we're honest, cancel culture has existed for some time. I think we are just sort of at a spot where 
uh, I think it's lack of, I don't know, is it lack of leadership that, that is just well, causing us to cave I, in? No, I, I, I don't know if that's it. I, I think it's, you know, fear, fear mm-hmm. that, you know, people won't get elected because remember the priority one is to get elected or to get reelected, yep. right? Um, so I, I actually think um, it's leadership might be part of it, but I do believe it's just been a, a deterioration of where we're at uh, in the political system. And and like I say, it's too bad, but it, it is perhaps a reflection of where we are much more broader in society. And it's something that hopefully we'll be able to get a chance to uh, to get a go into after the break. All right. We're, we'll be back. I'm talking with John Rustad after this. Join me, Michael Big Easy Cast, at the Blues Roadhouse Saturdays from 2 to 4 p.m. We explore and enjoy the blues from its 12-bar birth in the Mississippi Delta to its recent worldwide renaissance. Not only will we be moved by the music, I will share the histories of the songs and the men and women that, as B.B. King put it, paid their dues, laying down the foundation for our classic rock and modern-day beats. That's the Blues Roadhouse, Saturdays from 2 to 4 p.m., right here on your community radio station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. The 30th Annual Antiques and Collectibles Fair is this fall. Saturday, October 1st and Sunday, October 2nd, check out a great variety of antiques and collectibles at the Rolodome. Admission is just $5, $4 for seniors and students, and children under 6 get in free. Interested vendors can call 250-563-1507 to book a table. In support of the South Bowl Community Association, the 30th Annual Antique and Collectibles Fair. Saturday, October 1st and Sunday, October 2nd at the Rolodome. If you have dietary restrictions due to diabetes, gluten sensitivity, or stroke, or are on a keto diet, listen carefully. Deb's Cafe has blueberry pie, coconut cream pie, butter tarts, butter pecan cookies, strawberry cheesecake, brownies, carrot cake, cinnamon rolls, and many more items which are suitable for your special dietary needs and which our customers assure us are delicious. Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery, next to Pharmasafe at 7th and Quebec. Forecast from Environment Canada, sunny today, then a mix of sun and cloud with a 30% chance of showers and the risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon, a high of 29 with a high UV index. Partly cloudy tonight with a 30% chance of showers and the risk of a thunderstorm, a low of 14. For Friday, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers, wind becoming southwest 20K in the afternoon with the risk of a thunderstorm, a high of 22. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right, Trudy Clausen back with John Rustad, MLA for Nechaco Lakes. Uh, okay, so John, tell me why you took this position and why you are, this this position of speaking up for, um, for your riding, um, and in particular in terms of some of the... Um, uh, climate change mitigation things and, and rules and policies and governance that is coming along. So what's what what's the issue? What's the problem? Why why did you feel compelled to speak up? So last December, uh, the federal government brought forward a policy uh, a policy paper. Federal government. Federal government. That's right. Brought forward a policy paper that uh, essentially wanted to see a thirty percent reduction in the use of nitrogen based fertilizer and a thirty percent reduction in our cattle herds. 35 to 40 percent of my riding wait, is... Wait, 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 wait. That's wait. right. That is what they wait, brought wait, forward. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, 30 percent reduction... in nitro- nitrogen-based fertilizers. Okay, so the case could be made just off the top of my head, right? The case could be made that, no, that's a good thing. We have to just find other ways to, to grow our food. And we can get into that. Okay, and then the second one... Was a 30 percent reduction in our, in our domesticated herds, cattle. Okay, this was a bill... 
This was a paper that was put forward by the federal government in De- in December of last year. They put it out for uh, for input. Uh, it's coming in now this fall, and, and they're looking at implementing it. And this was actually implemented in Sri Lanka. Uh, and and so what happened in Sri Lanka uh, in the first year of this policy being implemented, we saw a thirty percent reduction in rice crops, an eighteen percent reduction in their primary export product, which was tea. That has led to runaway food prices, food shortages, starvation, uh, civil unrest. 28 politicians' homes were burned. The president had to flee the country. So this is what happened to Sri Lanka. And now they're doing it in the Netherlands. And by the net, by the, the government, uh, in the Netherlands, they, by their own admission, they say this will cause 20% of the farms to close and a 30% reduction in their cattle herds. By the and net- the prevent, the federal government now wants to do this in Canada. And I'm just like, sorry, these are these environmental elitist policies that go along with, with the same sort of policies around fossil fuels that are going to lead to much higher costs for our food, much higher uh, uh, costs in general in terms of our cost of living, and quite frankly, a reduction in food. Worldwide, we face 345 million people face or on the verge of um, of food insecurity. In other words, they're not getting enough calories on a daily basis. These policies will reduce how much food we can produce. That's going to cause starvation. It's crazy that we would be implementing these kind of policies in a country like ours where we should actually be looking at how we can increase productivity to help other people in the world because we have such a great uh, uh, country for being able to do those sort of things. If I remember correctly, our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke up in in support of the Sri Lankan farmers protesting. Well, that's uh, that's interesting because they put out this paper uh, that uh, that is proposing to do this, and they what so, they've, they've so called it they've so called it these the, the reduction in agriculture emissions. But it is it is the same playbook that is that they're doing in in the Netherlands, which has caused protests all around Europe. What happened in Sri Lanka, and now they're talking about doing the same thing here in in Canada. And I just that's what. That was the straw for me that said, wait a second, these environmental elitist policies are actually hurting people. And it's wrong. I mean, 50% of the people in British Columbia are struggling to put food on the table. And we're going to drive up prices, reduce the amount of food availability, as well as the other side on, you know, on the fossil fuel. It just made no sense whatsoever. Well, okay, but that was Sri Lanka. Yes. Uh, we're not you know, we consider ourselves more <laughs> whatever we consider ourselves. We say, oh, no, that's a developing country. Uh, that surely wouldn't happen here. Uh, we're not going to starve. We're not going to... No, we're not. In Canada, we won't. But you go to the grocery store, and you go and look at an apple, the price of an apple, and then you go look at the price of an organic apple. It's 30% more. If we are reducing nitrogen, what it means is that the food being produced will actually be lower yield because they aren't using the fertilizer which then means it's going to be have to be priced similar to organic in order to be able to make ends meet that's a 30 percent increase in our food cost Hmm. so yes we aren't going to be out of food in canada but the amount of food that we produce will be reduced will be reduced the amount of food we can export to help other countries that are facing food shortages and a food crisis will be reduced and our costs will go up and there will be people that will need significant government help and food banks and these types of things just in order to make ends meet. 
And it's, it's these policies and approaches that are being brought in because of this blind approach on climate as opposed to looking at what the actual impacts would be and weighing those out and letting people know what those impacts would be before policies are implemented. And I think that's just wrong by governments. So what's the pushback? Like if you're arguing that point with someone and you're saying, hey, wait a minute, no, 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 people are going to, like our food costs are going to go up by 30% and Sri Lanka people are looking at starvation. What's the pushback? Like if you're talking to somebody who is actually willing to engage, what's the pushback? So what the pushback is, is is they come back, people will come back and say, yes, but, but climate change is more serious. CO2 emissions is more serious. And so we should be doing everything we can to reduce CO2 emissions. And that is where the area gets very gray. See, climate change is real. There's no question the climate is changing. Nobody can argue it's not. I mean, it's, it's obvious. Uh, man is definitely impacting our climate. The question is, what is the role of CO2? And that is the one that is questionable. When you look at hist- historical information going back millions of years, CO2 has always followed temperature increases, not preceded them. And so there is a, the link is tenuous at best in terms of the impact of CO2. Will it have some impact? Yes. But it's not the driver of climate change. And so we're talking about implementing policies that will definitely be hurting people, such as what fertilizer, that have already hurt people, such as on fossil fuels, um, because there's a theory that these things may be causing or may be contributing to climate change at an undetermined amount. Okay, so let's just go back, just uh, just to finish off this uh, segment. Back to the farmers. You said that something about, uh, what was it, 20% of farmers? So they implemented, they implemented this policy of 30% reduction of nitrogen-based fertilizers in the Netherlands and a 30% reduction of herds. And 30% the, reduction in, in herds. So if somebody has... Like, so, so if somebody has 600 cattle, they're talking about reducing to 400 cattle. Okay, so the farmer who has is producing an income from 600 cattle that is suddenly they're going to have uh, a third less. They're bought a third less animals, yes. Animals. And so already today, because of the policies that have been implemented, even getting access to fertilizer is difficult. Fertilizer prices have gone through the roof. Of course, fuel prices have all gone up. It's made it very, very challenging for the agricultural sector to be able to produce products. And now we're talking about taking another hit on them and saying, no, you cannot get the yields that you need to off your, off your farms and you can't have as many animals uh, as you had before. And in, and, uh, like I say, the government in the Netherlands has come out and said, this will mean 20% of the farms in the Netherlands will have to shut down, will be bought out by the government. Uh, and and a third purpose? of the herd is going to herds are going to be gone. For what purpose? Would, I mean, what to would meet be? this 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 reduction in fertilizer because they are looking at it thinking, well, agriculture uh, produces uh, a certain amount of CO two, and essentially, I'll be a little crass here, but essentially what they're saying is they want to stop cows they want to stop cows from farting to be able to change the weather. <laughs> I'm yes. sorry, but that's how so ridiculous it is, right? It's crazy. Okay, well, with that, <laughs> it's time for a break. We'll be back talking with John Rustad. 
The Prince George RCMP is requesting the public's help in locating a wanted person. 30-year-old Jenny Jean Marie Lowley is wanted for assault causing bodily harm. Ms. Lowley is described as an indigenous female, 5 foot 2, 122 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. Ms. Lowley is considered violent and should not be approached. If you have any information about Jenny Jean Marie Lowley or where she may be, please call the RCMP at 250-561-3300. The Klukas Lake Jamboree is back. Enjoy three great days of country and rock and roll music from a dozen different bands, September 9th, 10th, and 11th, among the beautiful surroundings of Klukas Lake. Full weekend passes are just $35, with single-day passes just 15 Children under 12 get in free. All proceeds go to the Klukas Lake Community Association. The Klukas Lake Country Music Jamboree, September 9th, 10th, and 11th at the Klukas Lake Community Hall. Admission is at the gate. The Prince George Community Foundation is pleased to announce the Refresh Citizen of the Year Awards program. The Foundation is thrilled to announce the three new categories to honor and recognize Prince George citizens. Lifetime Achievement, Annual Difference Maker, and the Youth Achievement Awards. Complete category guidelines and nomination forms can be found through the link at pgcf.ca. The Prince George Community Foundation's Citizen of the Year Awards. Nominations are accepted through September 7th. On September 10th and 11th, Theatre Northwest is hosting certified stage combat choreographer Thomas Usher for two stage combat workshops. These are two distinct workshops, and artists can sign up to either or both. The first is for people learning to stage fight, scuffle, or fall safely on stage. The second is the use of weaponry on stage. Full details are available through the shows and events menu at theaternorthwest.com. Stage Combat Workshops, September 10th and 11th, from 10 to 2.30 at Theatre Northwest in the Park Hill Centre. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right. So um, back with uh, John Rustad talking um, about his ouster from the BC Liberal Party for uh, posting something about uh, Australia's coral reefs doing really well. And... Um, and and so and we've just finished talking about the farming issue and in the reduction in nitrogen use and and herds that's coming in the fall from the federal government um and so that's part of the reason John was speaking up about this trying to change a little bit of the discussion but so let's segue into energy tech and electric vehicles you during the break you were just uh telling me a little bit about the story of that so why do you think is electricity electric vehicles maybe not the savior that we've been told. So, I mean, I, I fully support If people want to go to electric vehicles, that's great. Mm-hmm. But let's be realistic so that people can understand just what that means. So if every passenger vehicle in British Columbia would be electric, we'd need the power output the equivalent of three site Cs. Three site Cs. Just to be able to power uh, the electric vehicles in BC. But more importantly, you know, we've got this target, and this is, one of, once again, these environmental elitists that come out with these targets. You know, by 2040, we want all vehicles to be zero emissions, i.e. electric vehicles. Well, last year, the world produced just over 4 million electric vehicles. There's about 3 billion vehicles worldwide that are in use. So you can you do the math, right? You're talking about eight or 900 years in order of, of production in order to meet this goal. And, and people say, oh, well, we could just ramp up production. In order to ramp up production of electric vehicles, a 90 to 95% of the supply chain for batteries doesn't exist today. Not to mention the materials. You would need twice as much copper being mined. You would need seven times as much nickel being mined. You'd need 14 times as much cobalt being mined. All of these 
exi- don't exist today and will take decades to be able to ramp up even if you know society wanted to go in that direction and so it's not realistic to have these targets in place in the meantime we say we want to eliminate fossil fuels so if you can't have an electric vehicle we don't have the power generation uh for for the electric vehicles even if you could have one when we want to eliminate our our mode of transportation and the means of our our industry today it doesn't make any sense and people say well you know you can just build wind and solar germany has spent 600 billion euro on building out its its green energy which is great you know they made all these investments it's part of over the last decade 2.7 trillion dollars that's been spent worldwide out of that 2.7 billion dollars that's been spent worldwide that represents less than three percent of the world's energy needs and that's the low-lying fruit it gets more expensive and harder from here and so in germany and in other places in europe because of the challenge that's going on with ukraine and russia um, their electricity prices have absolutely gone through the roof their renewable grid uh, cannot meet the needs. They don't have the backup and storage that is needed, and you can't just build that out with batteries. It, it's not physically possible. And so we've seen, you know, between a thousand and twelve hundred uh, percent increase in electricity rates. So you well, can wait, imagine. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We haven't here though. No, no. Over in Europe. Over this in is Europe. What's happened so in, say in, that again. in France and Germany. The the over the average electricity price over the last ten years, today's price is up between a thousand and twelve hundred percent. So you can imagine electricity costs going up by tenfold. What that would do to industry, what that would do to people just struggling already to put food on the table, and so we need to be looking at all these policies and approaches. But we need to be realistic about what those policies are doing and how to actually do it instead of just being driven by these environmental elitists and their approaches on this it doesn't make sense to do this and we need to be able to have this conversation which is why you know i am so keen on wanting to be able to speak out about this so that we can understand if we want to go electric vehicles okay this is what it means we're going to have to ramp up mining we're going to have to ramp up our electricity production we're going to have to rebuild the grid for transportation all the way from from source including in the communities great let's do that but here's what the cost is here's what it means here's what the impact on on taxpayers are here's what the impact on our society is let's Put it all on the table so that people can make an informed decision about what we should be doing for our future. So is is what we're seeing, because, I mean, most of our of our um, elected officials and governments and parties are sort of, no, this is, we have to do this, we have to do this. But they're not coming out with numbers like that. They're not talking about the hard facts of what it would mean on the ground for, for people. Is it just an election ploy? And, you know, really, people like you um, don't have to really worry about that they're actually going to implement those things because it's virtually impossible. So is this, are they just... It's oh. virtual signaling. It's not reality. It's virtual signaling. And it's designed to get votes because that's where the political parties believe they need to be. And it's it's uh, that's one of the real challenges we have with our democratic systems today is people aren't willing to talk about the impacts like what's the, what's really going on. They just want to say what they think they need to say in order to be able to garner votes and, and seem to be, as, as Kevin Falcon has put it, we need to be climate leaders to deal with the crisis. Well, first of all, we're not in a crisis. And the second of all, you can't be climate leaders if you aren't going to be realistic about what the, what that actually means. It's just. So I mean the one nice language. Just segueing a little bit back, or just going back. One of the problems 
with the 30% nitrogen uh, reduction and the 30% herd reduction is that's going to put a lot of farmers out of business. Farmers don't have a lot of votes. Um, farmers are would be considered small and medium-sized enterprises, right? SMEs. Um, to see? me, so many times when we do these grand projects, like I think some like that is part of my problem with the with the um, climate emergency movement, um, is that it hurts the little guy more, and it gives an advantage to the giant corporations. Farming across the country um, is different in every little ecozone in terms of you know some use need more fertilizer some need less some are fortunate because they get more water some get less i mean there's a whole wide range of things that go in um, but to do blanket policies uh, across is certainly going to hurt uh, things and, and this is this is the thing that i don't get if you reduce food and the amount of food available in the world if you re- drive up the cost of the amount of food you will cause starvation people will die is that really what politicians want to stand for? So they don't want to talk about it. They want to talk about, you know, what we're doing in, in, the, in the name of climate change without actually talking about the hardship they're actually going to cause people. And that's just wrong on so many levels. Yeah, I don't think that there's very, very many politicians that will campaign on, I will make people in, de- in the developing countries starve. Yeah, well, of course not, right? So, <laughs> uh, but, but in essence, that's what these policies will do. Okay, all right. Well, it's time for a break. We'll be back after this. The National Campus and Community Radio Association is seeking a part-time national advertising coordinator to work on their CAN ads program. The goal of this position is to find new advertising opportunities for member stations while coordinating the national network for scheduling, reporting, and payments. Full details are available through the jobs link at the bottom of their homepage, ncra.ca. Submit a cover letter and resume to barry at ncra.ca. CRA.ca with the application title National Advertising Coordinator. Application deadline is August 30th. BC Ale Trail's Best Brewery Experience Award is back for its fifth year. All British Columbians are asked to cast your vote to help your favorite craft brewery snap up the coveted award. By voting, you'll be entered to win one of three great BC getaways. Six additional lucky voters will win a $100 gift certificate to a BC Ale Trail prize pack. Voting is available online through vicnews.secondstreetapp.com. The voting deadline is August 31st. The 30th Annual Antiques and Collectibles Fair is back this fall. October 1st and 2nd, check out a great variety of antiques and collectibles at the Roller Dome. Admission is just $5, $4 for seniors and students, and children under 6 get in free. A weekend pass is $8. In support of the South Bowl Community Association, the 30th Annual Antiques and Collectibles Fair, Saturday, October 1st from 10 to 5, and Sunday, October 2nd from 10 to 4 at the Roller Dome. Forecast from Environment Canada, sunny today, then a mix of sun and cloud with a 30% chance of showers and the risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon, a high of 29 with a high UV index. Partly cloudy tonight with a 30% chance of showers and the risk of a thunderstorm, a low of 14. For Friday, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers, wind becoming southwest 20k in the afternoon with the risk of a thunderstorm, a high of 22. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, Trudy Clausen back with John Rustad, MLA for Nechaco Lakes. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about CO2 and, and John's uh, idea around that and, and stuff that he's talked about. And, and I know I've looked into it a tiny bit. What I know about CO2 is basically... <laughs> 
is basically that in the lower mainland they use it they pump co2 into their greenhouses to grow the to grow plants to grow food so we need you know that co2 is interesting because it is it is the the gas of life Without CO2, there is no life. There is no existence. Okay, but wouldn't it kill us if we were breathing CO2? If we were doing just CO2, it would. Of course, we need oxygen. And isn't CO2 what's causing greenhouse gas or, well, or and, the climate to change? And that's, that's, that is now the core of the real okay. debate. Okay, all right. Well, you and take so it back, away. Okay, so back in the, in the late 60s, um, scientists noticed that the world temperatures was cooling. We were actually in a cooling trend from the from about the mid '60s all the way to the end of the 1970s. I remember. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt a little bit because I remember being in grade school and watching National Film Board videos, and we were just terrified about the planet cooling. And people, the theory of the day was that because we're putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it w- it would refract the light and actually cause the Earth to cool. Yes. And so and so they had this theory about global cooling and we're heading towards a new ice age. We've got to stop putting carbon dioxide yes. in the atmosphere because it's going to... St- so that was the 70s. Well, then it, we came into the early 80s and the temperatures changed and started warming. And so that theory got quickly thrown out the door and now suddenly it's, no, no, carbon isn't starting <laughs> causing cooling. It's causing global warming. Oh my goodness. And so off it went. And then there was all these predictions in the eighties and the nineties that the oceans were going to rise and cities were going to be underwater and all this. I mean, none of those predictions have come to true, but that was what, so that was what led to global warming. The key here though is what happened in society because society, you know, sometimes it pays attention to this stuff. Sometimes it doesn't. But right around Y2K, around the turn of the millennium, there was a heightened concern by people that there was some impending doom. There's something like people deep down inside have this fear that, you know, that there's a disaster that's going to happen. So these environmental elitists played on that fear and came up with all of these policies around global warming that, you know, the, the Himalayas were going to melt, the ice in the Himalayas were going to melt, and, and it would cause starvation in Africa, or I mean in, in uh, India. Well, of course, that didn't happen. The polar ice was going to melt, and the polar bears were going to die off because, because they need the ice. Well, that didn't happen. You know, that the coral reefs were going to die because of this. Well, that didn't happen, right? All of these predictions, you know, the sea level rising, all these predictions that came out didn't happen. And so they knew they had a problem with the term global warming. So in about the, you know, 2005, 2007, they switched it to global cooling. And the unfortunate part is, uh, or not global cooling, sorry, they switched it to climate, climate change. change. Yes. Now the unfortunate part is, and this is, you know, Mark Twain that said this, and that is that it is far easier to convince people of a lie than to convince people that they have been lied to. And so, when you look at this, you know, every year today now we hear this coming out from, from the scientists that it's the hottest year on record. You know, it's never been warmer than this. It's the hottest year on record. Well, look at the satellite data. Look at the actual temperatures on Earth, the, 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 uh, the stuff that, that's coming out. And there's a great site called temperature.global, which just, you know, it's no politics, there's nothing, no spin. It just takes all those ground-based data, 70, 80,000 of these things every hour, and calculates the average temperature of the Earth. When you look at the data, it shows that we haven't been actually the hottest years on record. Matter of fact, since 2015, uh, 2014, 2015, the temperatures have actually been cooling. Both the satellite data and the ground data confirm this. But... So how does it that scientists can come out and credibly say it's the hottest year on record? 
it's because the data is being adjusted. So when we talked about the global cooling in the 70s, and you remember it, right? It was all this mm -hmm. stuff. So you go and look at the data they're using today. That global cooling trend has actually been flattened to a slight increase. They've corrected the data, they say, or adjusted the data. And they've done it to fit the model. On what grounds have they done that? You'll have to talk to the, talk to them about why they've done it. But they, when you look at the, the core data from history mm -hmm. versus the core data that they're using for their models, they're not the same. They've been adjusted, and they say they've they come out with this great theory around all the all the variables that go into it. So we're in a situation where we're implementing these policies around reducing carbon because we're worried that. It's the world is is going to burn up. Right, because CO2 is causing warming. But when you look at the model, and particularly if you go back before 150 years ago, and you look at the models, it doesn't work. Like, a thousand years ago, it was warmer than it is today, yet CO2 levels are lower than that. Okay, so you mentioned that a little bit before we started. So can you talk a little bit about that idea? Sure. So... Um, because you're able to drill cores, you're able to do all this sort of analysis, scientists can actually have a reasonable estimate of what temperatures were like, you know, going back millions of years and where CO2 levels were, were at going back millions of years. Most people don't realize that the average CO2 level in our atmosphere was 1,600 parts per million. And at 1,600 parts per million, we had massive amounts of growth. The earth was lush. There were millions more species than exist today. At 1,200 parts per million, the coral reefs formed. This was about 250 million years ago. Mm -hmm. And yet somehow 435 parts per million today is a problem. It's, it doesn't make any sense, particularly when you go back even looking <clears throat> at you know, our more recent history, 1,000 years ago or 1,200 years ago, when England had a wine industry, Greenland had a cattle industry, and it was warmer than it is today. Hmm. And so... Don't look too closely at the history. Just focus on what's happened since the end of the mini ice age and, and the theories that go forward. But once you start actually digging into it, the theories become uh, stressed. Now, is CO2 contributing to global warming uh, or, or climate change? It might be. Is it the driver of, of global temperatures? It's unlikely. Certainly not the historical data doesn't and, support And so it. that's the reason that you think that we need to push back on these government policies to reduce nitrogen and to reduce cattle herds. Well, I think it's part of it. It's part of the discussion that is needed. But the other part of it is the impact on people, on average people, the day-to-day -day people. So some would say, well, what's, you know, we can kill off people now so that people can live in the future. Like, what do you say to that? Uh, I'm sorry, but I'm not up for genocide. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I am not up for supporting policies that are intentionally going to hurt people or potentially even cause starvation. Like, that just makes no sense, as no government should stand up for that kind of stuff. And if they do, oh my God, they should be honest with people, because I guarantee you people would turf them out. Yes, I mean, they, I guess they could argue that, well, we're doing this for future... Yes. But I mean, I, yeah, I can... Yeah, that's and, and so, bringing, and so bringing up bad things. Say, well, and, and so people say... <laughs> Um, you know, that more people now are going to die from, from climate disasters. And, and you have to weigh that and offset that. Well, so let's look at historical data. Yeah. More people, people. More yeah. people had died on a per capita basis from climate issues in the, at 1900, 1920 in there than they, had, than they do today. And the reduction has been very dramatic. And why? 
because we are able, we've got better construction, we've got better forecasting, we're able to warn people, people are able to get away. And so people, you know, we can adapt yep. to and these changes, which is the key. Yeah, and that's talking a little bit of mitigation, right? So um, we're going to do a massive shift coming back because I really want to talk a little bit uh, about the situation um, that we've got in BC Healthcare. And so we'll be back, we'll be back talking with John Rastad after this break. Engage your board and align their work with organizational values and vision with Vantage Point's board fundamentals, roles, and responsibilities. A highly effective and engaged board has clarity around roles and responsibilities and aligns their work and performance with organizational values and vision. Registration, cost, and full details are available through the calendar link under training at thevantagepoint.ca. Board fundamentals, roles, and responsibilities, Thursday, September 15th from 530 to 830-3 through the vantage point.ca. Tickets are still available for Vantage Point's Building Organizational and Sector Sustainability Conference. November 15th and 16th, join not-for-profit leadership peers and stakeholders in conversation and learning around this year's theme, Healthy Sustainable Work. Registration and full details are available at bossvancouver.ca. Vantage Point's Building Organizational and Sector Sustainability Conference, November 15th and 16th. Hosted by the Grizzly Bear Foundation, the Indigenous Roundtable on Grizzly Bear Conservation and Bear Viewing Ecotourism is an Indigenous-led process framework composed of First Nations and Indigenous businesses from areas wherever grizzly bears roam. Elected First Nations chiefs, counselors, hereditary chiefs, resource staffs, Indigenous staff members of conservation organizations, and owners of Indigenous bear viewing operations are invited to join the roundtable. More information is available through the Indigenous Roundtable link under Our Work at Grizzly Bear Foundation. Minds in Motion is a fitness and social program provided for people experiencing early symptoms of dementia and their care partners. Each fitness session is followed by social time, an opportunity to connect with others living with dementia. An in-person series is available in Prince George on Tuesdays through September 6th at the YMCA. To register or for more information, contact the Prince George Resource Centre at 250-564-7533 or email info.com. Prince George at AlzheimersBC.org. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back with John Rustad. We're going to leave aside his whole the whole uh, climate and uh, adaptation thing. Um, thing, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about the last uh, 10 minutes. We're going to talk about BC Healthcare. And the fact that we have emergency room closures all throughout the province. So what's going on from your perspective? What's so the situation like in, in your riding first? The situation is bad in my riding. Um, we, uh, I mean, Vanderhoof is fortunate. It has lots of, it has a, a quite a few doctors. It has a very good healthcare system. It's got a very good hospital. People from here go to Vanderhoof for surgery. That's right. Because yeah. they actually have surgery rooms available. And that's, part of the problem, right, is, is professionals are being underutilized because there isn't time in, available in surgery rooms. But, you know, other places, Fort St. James, for example, right, they, they have, they're struggling with their health professionals. They don't have enough doctors. There's long-term care facilities that don't have enough uh, folks and people are having to come in. So this is a challenge right across the province, not just in, in rural areas. The, a couple of things have contributed to this. Uh, first of all, because of covid uh, a number of people left the workforce, and you know that perhaps is a topic for another day. Um, we also saw a large number of people decide to retire, and so 
the number of professionals we have, and I don't care whether it's truck drivers or whether it's doctors or whether it's nurses, um, the number of professionals have left the workforce. So we need immigration in a big way. And of course, during COVID, we didn't get a whole lot of immigration. No. So now we're short probably 100,000 positions, at least in the province. I'm just, that's just a ballpark estimate, not just in health, but across. And we're only graduating 50 to 60,000 students a year. And so every year we keep falling behind. We need this immigration coming in. So all of this leads into the healthcare problem that we have. And we got a government that has no plan in terms of being able to bring in the, the, the people we need to address healthcare. And so we've got uh, situations, for example, these urgent primary care facilities that have started up by government. And, you know, on paper, they look good. They make a lot of sense. But when you look at a doctor who sees 30 or 40 patients in a day in, a, in, a, in their private practice, and then you look at how many patients are being seen in an urgent primary care facility by a doctor, and they may be more complex, whatever the case may be, but it's only a fraction of what doctors are seeing in a clinic or in their in their own practices. Okay, when you say urgent primary care, what is that? So it's um, so there's a number of care facilities out, right? There is these walk-in clinics, and then there's these urgent primary care, right? So instead of going to emergency room, you would go to something something so like, like that. Basically, what most of us would think of as a walk-in clinic, similar to a walk-in clinic, yeah. But even for walk-in clinics today, like um, last spring, uh, I unfortunately came down with shingles. I wasn't sure what it was, and I had to be in Victoria for the for the house sitting, uh, and so I flew down to Victoria, and then then you know realized, hey, I've got a problem. So I went to see, okay, um, I got to go see a doctor. So I called my doctor, and he said, okay, you know, we can do a, a video appointment on Tuesday, and I've got a great per, uh, you know family doctor, but I'm but I thought I should really get in and try to deal with this on Monday, and so I called around the first walk-in clinic. Uh, sorry, we aren't taking anybody in today. Second walk-in clinic, uh, you have to be here before 8 o'clock in the morning. We might be able to get you in by 5 in the afternoon. Hmm. That's not service. And so we have this shortage of, of doctors, uh, doctors that are being underutilized in terms of what there is. We've got the shortage of other staffing. Our whole healthcare system, quite frankly, is on the verge. It is in a crisis, and it's on the verge of not being able to provide the services that we need. And in many places, it's not. Well, it's a little bit concerning, right? You're reading about these um, or hearing about these uh, emergency room closures, and you're going, golly, if I'm traveling. So, So get this. So we have private services available in British Columbia. If you are a federal prisoner, if you are a an RCMP officer, if you are a worker who has been injured and on WCB, uh, if you're a judge, you can access these. But if for a regular person, you're not allowed to. And so uh, Dr. Day had a case that went forward in court, and, and it just recently yes. had a ruling. An in incredible the, ruling. An incredible ruling in, in, the, uh, uh, in the appeals court. <laughs> because that one actually said, yeah. it's better that a few people die. Well, exactly, right? And, and so the government actually made, the BC government actually made the argument that the system is more important than people's suffering. That is just so incredibly unacceptable. And this is another example of these elitists with these policy ideas as opposed to looking at what really needs to be done to help people. What do we need to do to help people? And so we've got, you know, by by measures, you know, in in the developed world, we've got actually one of the best outcomes once you get into the system. Yes. But we have one of the worst systems in the world in terms of actually accessing and getting into it. And and so we need to be looking at how are these other countries providing health care that is much better 
in terms of being able to access, get through, and not have these sort of challenges that we do. What is it that they're doing? And for whatever reason, because this is another sacred cow, we're not allowed to talk about what other countries are doing and how they have a blended system and the role government plays as, as part of that system to make sure that their people are being serviced. Well, and I would, and even within our system, uh, I know this is one thing that at the very beginning of COVID, I was looking, I mean, I was looking at a lot of things, right? And I, I eventually gave up because it just seemed so convoluted beyond my comprehension, uh, trying to figure out, for instance, how many uh, ventilators do we have? How many, you know, uh, I mean, that stuff you could find. But what was the death rate and all of that stuff that I couldn't yep. figure that out. Um, but but um, the the um, you know when you like talk- we've got our hospital executives are getting paid massive amounts of money because this is something that I've heard. Like, why are they getting mass paid massive amounts of money and the system that they're running is crumbling? Like, what's going on there? Well, there's there's some challenges, and and I think there's challenges at all levels, and really uh, there needs to be a review of of the management and not a sort of structure. But but when you look at our healthcare system, we are dead last when it comes to wait times. Um, when you look at compared uh, to compared to other developed countries, okay. Uh, when you look at um, the only country that actually is worse than us, quite frankly, is the United States. But let's leave them out because they've got a very different system. Uh, we have one of the most expensive. Matter of fact, we have the most expensive, short of the United States, uh, system per capita and our providing cost per capita. Providing the worst. Providing some of the, I mean, great outcomes once you get into it, but getting into it. A number of number of doctors uh, per capita, the number of, of hospital beds per capita, the amount of uh, wait time, you know, to, to, to get through in, in terms of emergency um, is all of those things rank right up near the end, right up near the, the worst. We be able to be able to. We have to be able to have an honest conversation about our healthcare system and what we need to do to improve it. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? We're out of time. I've Thank- enjoyed this. Thank you, Trudy. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in, and uh, wish you all the best. And we have we didn't even get around to talking about riding distribution or anything uh, like that. Well, maybe to do it another time. But you know, life as an independent is going to be interesting, and I do not plan to be quiet about all these sort of issues. Okay. Well, thank you for coming in. After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFISFM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis-Holt, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to CFISFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFISFM is owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society.